Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello. And welcome to the Ghibliotech, the podcast that surveys the kingdom of films from the world's greatest animation studio, Studio Ghibli. I'm Michael Leader, and I've seen a lot of them. And I'm Jake Cunningham, and I'm mad about them too. So join us on our quest into the glorious world of Ghibli. Hello, Jake. Hello, Michael. It's so lovely to hear your voice again. Ah uh, yes, it's 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 just heavenly to have those those tones back in my ears once more. How have you been? I've been okay. I think I've definitely shifted from the last time we've recorded. Last time I was in the midst of a mania of watching masculine broy films by Michael Mann and the like, and now I've progressed or regressed into puzzles and fermentation uh, i'm not sure if that's a good or a bad thing what are you fermenting jake uh, i'm making some sauerkraut and i also made some lovely pickled radishes which were very nice with a katsu curry oh very nice you're putting me to shame i don't think i've done anything of note since we last spoke <laughs> oh i'm sure you have i'm sure you have but as always, I'm so grateful for this podcast for shaking me out of my film-free funk and making me watch things all over again. And so we're doing something a little bit different for this episode and the next one, aren't we? Yeah, and this feels like it's been a long time coming uh, because despite having been to Japan and been to the museum and actually stood outside the Ghibli office... I've never been allowed to watch the documentaries about them until this point. So really, mm -hmm. frankly, I've got no idea who any of these people are. And when they started talking, I was like, who is this man with the, the lovely beard and the nice glasses and the very trendy apron? Um, but I, I think you might tell me about that. Exactly, yes. While we were going through the Ghibli library, their actual feature films, a lot of people are asking if we'd ever make it to, in particular, the film we're going to talk about today, The Kingdom of Dreams and Madness, because these are documentaries that were released alongside the feature films. And so these two we're going to talk about in this documentary double bill are films that have been released to home entertainment. 
So the Kingdom of Dreams and Madness, and then next episode we're going to do Hayao Miyazaki Never Ending Man, which has just recently come out on Blu-ray in the UK. It's been out in the States for a little bit longer. And who knows, we might go deeper at some point in the future, but this felt like a very appropriate double bill of two documentaries to do side by side. Yeah, and um, I know that there's a few others that we could get into, like the, the NHK documentary with 10 years with Miyazaki, and there's a Princess Kaguya documentary. And I think there's maybe a, a pretty wonderful sounding three hour long canal based documentary that I could really go in for. Exactly. The canal one isn't about Ghibli films. That's an actual full blown Ghibli movie. So that we definitely have to cover that someday. <laughs> it's just whether we can actually get hold of it properly to watch and review because it's never been released outside of Japan, to my knowledge. Well, fingers crossed. Fingers crossed, but we should get on with the first documentary we're going to talk about in this little double bill, which is The Kingdom of Dreams and Madness. So in previous episodes, we have a synopsis for the film we're about to discuss. Let's go for the DVD blurb for The Kingdom of Dreams and Madness. Granted near-unfettered access to the notoriously insular Studio Ghibli, director Mami Sonada follows the three men who are the lifeblood of Ghibli, the eminent director Hayao Miyazaki, the producer Toshio Suzuki, and the elusive and influential other director Isao Takahata. Over the course of a year, as the studio rushes to complete two films, Miyazaki's The Wind Rises and Takahata's The Tale of the Princess Kaguya. The result is a rare fly-on-the-wall glimpse of the inner workings of one of the world's most celebrated animation studios and an insight into the dreams, passion and singular dedication of these remarkable creators. So, Michael, normally at this point in the episode, majority of the time I would ask you, okay, so where is Hayao Miyazaki at this point in his career? Or where is Isao Takata at this point in his career? And you could give me a, a nice pinpoint of that man. but. We have someone totally different, someone outside of Studio Ghibli. Who is Mami Sanada? Right. So Mami Sanada is a filmmaker who started with an independent documentary called Ending Note, Death of a Japanese Salesman. That was about the illness and death of her own father, which was a documentary that was a surprise box office hit in Japan, made over 100 million yen. I'd really love to see that someday. It's never been released over here. But she was also, before and after this, uh, working as an assistant and protégé of the director Hirokazu Koreda, who in my opinion is the greatest living director. Um, She was production assistant on Still Walking, one of his greatest films, and assistant director on Air Doll, and she also had special thanks on Like Father, Like Son, which won a prize at Cannes. He really is the master of naturalistic, observational, almost documentary-like dramas. I think that's something to remember as we go in to talk about this film. Um... Not to get to heaven myself, but this film, The Kingdom of Dreams of Madness, played at the Toronto Film Festival alongside The Tale of the Princess Kaguya in 2014. And if you remember from that episode for Princess Kaguya, I interviewed Isao Takahata out there. I also interviewed Mami Sonada um, about this documentary. So I'm going to quote quite a lot from an interview I did with her now about the background for this film. The original plan came from Disney Japan and they wanted to make a promotional documentary to hype up the two Ghibli films in production, The Wind Rises and Princess Kaguya. And it fell to Sonata to mount this project, Uh, but she didn't want to make a normal TV documentary. So she went to the man himself, producer Toshio Suzuki, with an off-the-wall idea. 
this would be a theatrical documentary uh, to differentiate it from the standard TV docs that have been made in the past, and it would get under the skin of Ghibli. She'd embed herself within the studio to observe without a set agenda or narrative arc or any preconceptions. And this is how she described her process. I'm quoting from her directly here. What I did was that I would arrive at the studio by 10 a.m., when everybody else was starting to work and I was allowed to be free within the studio and it was as if I was actually working there myself and when I came upon something interesting, then I shot footage. And so it was an accumulation of discovering various incidences that I could use. It was like keeping a diary or a journal. And now she was there for a year observing and collecting footage and what was initially supposed to be this straightforward making of doc turned into something else. Uh, She even said that while she initially thought this would be a doc for fans of Ghibli, the film became to her a record of what these masters of animation were like in their daily lives as they created their works, and as portraits of their human qualities as people rather than just filmmakers. Okay, so Michael, you said you saw this at Toronto Film Festival Mm -hmm. in 2014. So at that point, it's not on general release, at least in America. Um, when was this released? So when would people have seen it compared to when they would have seen Wind Rises or Princess Kaguya? So globally, in any way, this was released in between the Wind Rises and Princess Kaguya. Um, don't want to get ahead of ourselves in our discussion, but in our interview, when we had a conversation, Mami Sinada said that she wanted more Isao Takahata. However, there was a date set for the release of the documentary And because of the delays in the production of Princess Kaguya, they were still hard at work. So she had to just kind of stop at the end of the documentary, which is the end of The Wind Rises, when they finished that, and didn't get the access to to Kaguya that she wanted. So this is coming out after The Wind Rises, after Miyazaki has announced his retirement, but with maybe a little bit of Princess Kaguya on the horizon. Interesting. So if Takahata had hit his deadline, she would have hit her deadline and maybe yes. the release date of this would have made a little bit more sense as well. So in, in a way, it completely fails at what it was supposed <laughs> to be, this promotional documentary for for Disney Japan about these two films getting made on time. <laughs> but so when I saw it um, in Toronto, I think I said this on our, on our Kaguya episode, I saw it in a double bill with Princess Kaguya. Um, I can't remember which one I saw first, but since both of those films the documentary and Princess Kaguya are about the passing of time and a life well lived and the and the ending and what may, may happen after the end. It was quite heavy. And then going and interviewing both the filmmakers afterwards was you know, really one of the you know, powerful highlights of my career. Wow. And uh, let's see if this is a powerful highlight of your film watching. <laughs> yes, Jake, let's see what you made of it. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. So, Jake, the reason why we're coming to the documentaries now is that across this entire series of Ghibliotech, we've been filling in the background and the context. We've been talking about the characters behind the scenes, the filmmakers, the animators, and now we actually get to see them at work. We've also been to Japan. And watching this again now, there's so much that's familiar, even from the very opening shots, right? Yeah, and it's it's right there. It's lovely blue sky and green trees, but it just happens to be the Ghibli Museum and the Ghibli head office, uh, places that we, we walked around not a few months ago. And uh, I suddenly felt very attached to this whole film instantly. It captures the uh, the feel of that little sleepy suburb very well, doesn't it? Where you could almost not realise that the head office of one of the great animation studios is there. People milling about and kids going to a nursery nearby, trains trundling along the, the train tracks. Yeah, absolutely. Very, very um, I think within filmmaking documentaries, we kind of get used to seeing the the lots on the Hollywood studios or like bustling around Soho and places like that and it's just the exact opposite and Mm -hmm. I think it is so clear her documentary background with Coriada from the very very start that it's taking time to just build a sense of space and location and the feel of it and the sounds of it and makes it a very sensory feeling it does it invites you into that world and makes you feel like you are an employee alongside all of them like this is your first day in the studio as it was with hers and she has a very sparing use of narration about her her experiences going behind the scenes but we should also talk about this quite early on this film there are certain elements of this film that seem to be very widely reported online particularly memes taken from this film. Were you aware of these beforehand? Yeah, I I think those memes and you talking about him on the podcast is probably like the two big exposures to Miyazaki that I have. And I think in the the narrative that we, we construct in the show about him retiring and saying these things to Goro, uh, and then you look at the things that get screenshotted and posted on Twitter. It's just the, it's this grumpy old man who doesn't want to be there and he's only got bad things to say. And you watch this documentary and even though all of those screenshots and those jokes come from this documentary, 
it flips them on their head. He's lovely. <laughs> so even if when he's saying things like filmmaking is suffering, he's almost playing up to the camera a little bit, isn't he? he or playing up to whoever he's talking to. He'll usually then break out into a huge grin and say something like, oh, I'm probably going a bit too far there. We should say, though, that this is the film where the at least the screenshot that is tends to be used for the anime was a mistake meme came from this. And of course, that's not what he's talking about in that moment. That is a completely fabricated meme that plays on the fact that Miyazaki is a, supposed to be a grump. But that's something that we really find in this film is that he is completely uh, enlivened by the people he works with. And he seems to have a great relationship with Mami Sonata behind the camera. He's quite avuncular, full of stories. And while he's working and penciling and everything, goes off in various tangents. This is also a portrait of the studio in full production, bustling with people. I think it's in the narration where Mami Sonata says this is 400 employees, 100 of which are working on The Wind Rises. So that almost goes against this view of Ghibli being this small business. And you get that insight into this being a huge empire being run out of this small studio. Yeah, in a weird way, having stood across the road from it and looked at the building and then watching the film, it it almost has a TARDIS-like feeling to it. Because I, I, I don't remember the, the building looking like it would contain that many people in the first place. I don't remember if... Did we record ourselves outside the studio? So I don't know if we've told this story on microphone, have we? But we took a few pictures. We went there to say we'd been there. We had to actually move a bit of shrubbery out of the way to actually see the sign because it had been a little bit overgrown. Um, and then a couple of women came out of the studio and asked us if we were lost <laughs> we're like no we're not lost we definitely want to be here <laughs> but it definitely felt like this you know sleepy area why would you even want to be here but what mammy Sonata does is she takes you through those doors and you see some amazing tracking shots of the studio at work she really then as you say tardis like perhaps but you get this sense of the layout of this building this HQ that they created in the 90s and moved to that Miyazaki had had a hand in designing. There's, I think there's some archive at one point where it shows the plans and where they were, you know, when they were moving in. But what I think is really fascinating about this, and this is what goes against its potential proposal as being a making of documentary for the Wind Rises or the or Princess Kaguya is that you get this full sense of the full running of Ghibli plus all the people that are there. Very early on, we have scenes where it's business meetings, legal meetings, production meetings. It's not just, here's where the idea for the film came from, this is how it's being made, this is you know, whatever you expect. Yeah, and like, there's a meeting with Toshio Suzuki where they're talking about what merchandise is selling and the shift in merchandise sales from a younger audience to now adults are the people buying the merchandise. And so the merchandise needs to shift to fit that market. I think that's, that's nothing to do with the wind rises. Um, but it, it's those little bits that are the most fascinating because it's, it's all building that day to day and it's building that slice of life that actually we want from it. 
I th- you've mentioned Toshio Suzuki, so let's just talk about him for a second because most people who watch these films, m- many fans will maybe only know Hayao Miyazaki, maybe they'll know Isao Takahata. Toshio Suzuki is the person we've been shining the spotlight on throughout this podcast. And this is where he really comes into the spotlight. Did you get a lot of him in this? Oh yeah, this is this is his payoff. I mean, when we got to the end of our series where we talked about The Wind Rises and The Princess Kaguya as the final films and all of the work that they've been building up to and that these two films are the culmination of these two incredible artists. And th- this is Suzuki's time to shine. I think he's almost the main character of this, the hero. <laughs> well, and it makes sense. I'd forgotten when I rewatched this um, that, when, that I asked... Mami Sonata in the interview about about you know how she got all this access and you kept mentioning Toshio Suzuki in, as her fixer, allowing her all this access. And he is the route all the way through. So many shots of him driving around in his car with, with talking to her, or she's a fly on the wall in other conversations. You have an amazing um, little sketch of him in conversation where where people around the studio said that he would make a great detective. And we see him in his various guises. So we know him as the producer. We've talked all the way through about him maybe having a hand in the marketing. We talk about him with his calligraphy on the posters. Um, him geeing up these old geniuses to make another film. And it's all played out in this film in ways that you don't really expect. There's, there's sequences where we follow him on a regional tour of cinemas with the rep from... Uh, that the production, the TV production company that's funding the film, we see him a, a very funny bit, in fact, where they're trying to decide about the, the initial teaser poster artwork for the two films, where Miyazaki, I think, takes five minutes to decide on the placement of the text and the design, and Suzuki's like, "Great, done," and then Isao Takahata wanders in and takes two hours to decide on that (laughs) yeah he's he's brilliant and but we 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 maybe make it sound like he's he's all business and ruthless um but you can clearly see his affection for the men and how invested he is in their stories as well and i think that's really evident in his approach to a press conference which is unlike any press conference you'll see in the west that's for sure Uh, when they're launching the wind rises you watch that clip it's not like he's trying to sell the film. It's like he's written an essay on it and has prepared it for an audience and is delivering a lecture. It's amazing. And what does he, he goes into the themes of the film, the sort of biographical depth about Miyazaki and his love of planes and his father. It's all this, all these things are coming out in a press conference that I think is taking place while the film is still in production and half, half finished. <laughs> yeah, so it's amazing it to think that he's already planting those seeds early on. Yeah, and it's a dual press conference to talk about the wind rises and the tale of the princess Kaguya, and that is a bit of the film. Which now that you've explained it to me about the pushback on releases and her having to hit this release deadline before Princess Kaguya comes out, makes a lot of sense. That it feels missing from this film and to me it's very weird that you watched it in a double bill with the tale of the princess kaguya because it it's almost a side note to it this this should have been with the wind rises it really should be and she was very open about that when i asked her about it and she just said that she didn't have that access and she actually contrasted 
um, the personalities of both Miyazaki and Takahata. Miyazaki plays up to the camera and quite likes being a storyteller. He's a bit of a joker. And you can see that. Uh, we see just as much him talking to Sonata behind the camera, but also liking to regale his fellow staff members uh, you know, with whatever whatever's coming to mind. Whereas she said that Takahata just responded differently to the camera. Yeah. And maybe it was more that she couldn't just sit in on meetings and yeah and, and get enough material and it, and it does almost make it a frustrating viewing at times because the first half of the film when it talks about that film and its director it's almost like it's setting up your third act villain who's gonna uh, be a surprise reveal and it's a cameo from an actor who's really famous and it's suddenly going to change the dynamic of the whole thing and you have little teasers like he's fast regarding Miyazaki unlike the guy you're about to meet and we, and we kind of get a glance of Takahata um, but I, I do really wish we we got some insight into that film but I think it's just there's a reality to that where they had the separate studio um, Princess Kaguya was a much more troubled production than Wind Rises uh, you, you don't realize that when she's filming Kaguya had been in production for four or five years, I imagine, and was already way behind and was slipping compared to the Wind Rises. So, again, that could have been Suzuki. You never know. Not, yeah. not, you know, not wanting to shine a light on that. But what you get instead, and what's amazing for me about revisiting this, when I watched it the first time round, I'd seen all of the other Ghibli films, so it's not like I was a newbie, but I didn't have the deep appreciation that I do now that we've had this whole podcast journey where... I am looking at absolutely everybody in the background. Who are these people? Have we spoken about them? And what is actually happening in these conversations where there isn't a full context? And some of these supporting characters are amazing. And seeing them documented in this film is is really great. Like Yoshiaki Nishimura, who is somebody we've talked about as a producer on Kaguya when Marnie was there, and then going on to found Studio Ponok. We've talked about him quite a lot. And we see him here as almost the sole voice of Princess Kaguya, the project, when he pops up and maybe does that press conference with Toshio Suzuki. And he seems so young and fresh-faced, and <laughs> he, he's cracking jokes as well, saying that you know for for years now, every dream he's had has been about Isao Takahata. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Suzuki then uh, chimes in saying, when they started production... Uh, Nishimura was unmarried and now he's married with two kids and one of them is in nursery you know it's amazing how frank they can be and and, and crack these jokes about these old geniuses who are working oh, away yeah I I loved Sankichi who's Miyazaki's assistant who I think is the, the only person outside of that main trio who can get away with poking fun at him and giving a bit of a rib and they have a great exchange where she's clearly, clearly striking a nerve about the uh, the dub of Kiki. Well, also, yeah, just, yeah, trying to, yeah, after after what by that point, twenty years had passed, and she's she's saying, what what was that ending? Why 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 was why didn't Gigi say something at the end? And he's it's great to see that he's he engages with it, um, tries to come up with a real um, a real answer to her. I think one of the key scenes in this, and this is something that really only the hardcore Ghibli nerds would even care about, is the scene with Goro Miyazaki. 
um, <laughs> where it's just this one minor scene halfway through where Mami Sonada is weaving this thematic thread throughout about Miyazaki and um, his childhood and his relationship with his father. And she throws in a scene with Goro Miyazaki having a crisis on the project he was working on and almost coming to Suzuki and saying, I can't do this anymore. And Suzuki's sort of like reclining with his head in his hands saying, no, you've got to do it, Goro. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I never never wanted this. Yeah, like I I came into this, this business by accident. He does not look like a happy man. But I think the project he's working on just sort of, Judging by the dates, I wouldn't have thought about this at the time because it didn't come out in, you know, globally in the UK for many years. I think he's working on Ronya, the robber's daughter, the the sort of CG animated, cell shaded TV series that Goro did, which is like flies under the radar for even Ghibli fans, very unGibli, and sounds like he's having a not a very fun time on that project. Yeah. Now there is a wealth of amazing people characters in this film um and it's and it's easy for us to talk about their interactions and what we learn from them um but i I kind of like to go a bit wider michael and Mm -hmm. now that you've mentioned uh the coriada connection which i had no idea about and knowing your love for him as a filmmaker what does mami sonada bring as a filmmaker to this i just think this is such a well-made documentary and you really get the sense of a filmmaker with a point of view behind the camera we said that about her fly on the wall technique the idea that it's so important to her to get these the sense of context the everyday world around the studio as well as the moments where you see Miyazaki sketching a zero plane and then flicking back and forth between multiple frames which is sort of that's what a making of documentary would have she finds the time to have the Studio Ghibli cat be this recurring character like this chorus line coming 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 past every few minutes to remind you where you are and uh, what you're watching that's um Ushiko, the Studio Ghibli cat who's amazing I also think it's it's her use of editing as well. It's sometimes quite hard with documentaries to think about them as edited pieces. Of course, you've got these hundreds of hours of footage, so editing in one way is imposing structure, but also editing is imposing a sense of tone, a sense of pace, a sense of point of view. And what she does in a couple of moments here is actually really astounding when you realise the subtlety of what's going on. There's the The, the scene we mentioned where it's been misappropriated as a shot of Miyazaki saying that anime was a mistake where he's smoking while sketching and looking really grumpy. It's a bit where he's having a crisis where he can't draw the zero fighter plane. He's, he can't nail this shot that he wants. And he's just, he's talking about hardcore airplane nuts or otaku. And he's asked, Oh, so you love planes, but you're not an otaku. And he says, no, I'm not an otaku. And there's this immediate cut between that and a shot where Miyazaki is sitting next to Hideaki Yano, who we'll come to in a bit, but he's sitting there with a scale model of a plane going, meow, <laughs> just absolutely reveling in, these, the, the, in playing with toys. And there's this a little comment, a little sending up of, the, of, of, of her subject there that you wouldn't really get in the sort of the TV narrated documentary. There's also a bit that I know you really liked, which is another Goro related bit in the edit. Yeah. And there's this thread, as you mentioned about Miyazaki talking about his, his childhood and his father. 
and he talks about a letter that he received um, from a person who was there during the war uh, when Miyazaki was a child. And he receives this letter and he kind of ponders it and ponders how to respond to it. And we hear that letter read out, not by Miyazaki. Um, but there is references to it about Miyazaki understanding his father and his father's actions during the war. But at that mention of understanding his father, she cuts to Goro at that point. And it's just so powerful, just... And something that you can only get when you're kind of freeing up what you want to do as an editor and not just follow that easy linear route of making the film documentary. And I, I wonder whether we're picking out these flourishes um, and these moments of really lovely editing because it kind of brushes up against animation because mm. with animation you're you're editing on the page you're editing right at the start and because you're never going to want to animate something because it takes so long that you're then going to cut out and so it is so rigorously planned and then this film throws in these moments that almost feel expressionistic that they've just been found in a bin in final cut and dragged into the timeline mm. to give us something else as a piece of editing i think it's wonderful it really is and it pains me that she, this is her only, this is the last documentary she made. She's been a producer and writer in the years since, but she's such a skilled, she has such, she has such an eye as a documentary filmmaker here. We have watched, I mean, I've watched other Ghibli documentaries. We'll talk about another next week. And not every Ghibli film looks or feels like this or gives you the insight that this one does. And she has a real curiosity Maybe it's also something about her personality. She, she's a, when I interviewed her, she was very um, unsupposing. She's a, a very quiet, small lady, and maybe she's unassuming in that way and is able to sort of sidle up to all these animators, predominantly female animators as well, which is something you forget. You know, admittedly, this is the Kingdom of Dreams and Madness, and it's the picture of Takahata, Suzuki, and Miyazaki sitting in front of the studio. But she shows that this is. Um, a profession with many women there. And she has these very calm, subtle, telling moments with them. It's just a really great documentary for that. All, yeah. all the, like it's, it's skillful in its observation, but also the way it's put together. And for those individual moments, I mean, we could spend the whole episode just make, going through a list that we both made of, and this bit, and this bit, and this bit, and this bit. Um, but... Michael, I'd have to challenge you for a, a couple of standout bits for you. Okay, I'm gonna th I'm gonna rattle off three very quickly. Suzuki playing acoustic guitar, amazing. <laughs> um, there's one bit that I'd like to mention. She spends a lot of time with Miyazaki at his atelier, which is his like home private studio, and he shows her a project that he'd been putting together after the financial crash. Um, where he documented how it affected his local town, a like a, a huge binder of photographs. And let me just do, a, he, he makes a quote here saying, I tried to document the depression, but ended up with snapshots of life as usual. And it's this photo journalistic project. And they're thinking, this is a Takahata film. It's how Takahata would have made that into, you know, a sequence in Only Yesterday or Pompoko. You know, so much of the film is given over to Miyazaki and Takata and their differing approaches to filmmaking, but they do have a very similar 
um, interest in the world. But let's not let, let me not go too far off. You go you go ahead, Jake. What's what's some of your highlights? I've mentioned before how much I like the Yumi Arai track uh, that plays at the end of the Wind Rises, which is called Vapor Trails, and I I couldn't believe it when there was a single moment where Miyazaki is putting a CD on to work with and he chooses that track to then put on as he carries on animating. It was amazing. Um, There are all of these interactions that she comes back to with uh, the lady that delivers Yakult to the office, Um, which again is, that's not part of your making of documentary. That's your wonderful little side moment that doesn't have to be there but it it goes so far into just building that sense of place and feeling like as she was an employee and that you're gonna see Miyazaki dealing with the Yakult lady because that's what he does Um, and that's all there in the little incidental shots and that's what if I was going to draw a comparison between this film and Hirokazu Koreeda's films it is that sense of detail the the amount of detail that goes into making something feel natural and real and you see shots of the calisthenics routines that they go through at various points of the day where suddenly Miyazaki jumps up and is waving his arms about with everybody else the little handwritten notes that you see above people's desks these are the little moments that add up to something that is as important as some of the big moment you know the, the big historic moments about the film and the filmmakers one of those being a real highlight of the film for me is when they have a voice actor brainstorming session when they're trying to cast Jiro the protagonist in The Wind Rises and Miyazaki's listing off all of his attributes how he's um quite a softly spoken man but quite formal in in the way that men of the era were and they need someone who sounds a bit boring (laughs) a bit anxious and nervous and then suddenly it comes up like why don't we have Hideaki Anno the former Ghibli animator or at least Ghibli accomplice who then went on to create Neon Genesis Evangelion and is in his own way one of a legend of anime why doesn't he come in and be our protagonist (laughs) and you see over the series of a couple of cuts it's slowly dawning. Yeah, he's like, huh, yeah, maybe we, maybe we should get Anno. <laughs> oh, it is wonderful. Um, yeah, and I was, I, I got to mention that there's a really lovely moment once the wind rises has played to everyone, and it's been finished, and they go back to the office. Uh, the first thing that Miyazaki does, rather than even acknowledge the full office that's there is go straight up the stairs and to the roof because that's where his buds are waiting, Takata and Suzuki up there, and they just, they're just they just having a lovely time. And it almost feels like that's his reward for getting through it. <laughs> and it, it, it resolves on, well, it resolves in many ways, but one level that it resolves on is the sense of the ties that bind all these men together, all these collaborators together. Um of course there that's a a great sequence that shows these three men who've built an empire together standing on the roof but same with Hideaki Anno being a former protege of Miyazaki and seeing this these two generations of great animators joshing and you know Anno is one of the few guys that can take the mick out of Miyazaki I think I mentioned that 
on our episode for the Wind Rises where there's a really great press conference where um, Anno says that Miyazaki cried at the end of that staff screening. And you see that staff screening in this. So that's wonderful. But a sequence that Sonata ends on, it's the press conference where he announces his retirement, isn't it? Mm. He's about to go on and do it. And he's in this side room looking out a window. And he's just describing what he can see out the window. And all the way through the film, we've had these little flashes of what it, what Miyazaki, how Miyazaki's mind works as an animator. The, 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 the little bits of observation, the, the way that he infuses drawings with life. But this is a scene where he just looks at a rooftop and imagines an animated scene, an, an adventure, a, a magical moment that you'd see in a Ghibli movie. And you mentioned, Jake, she's been very sparing all the way through in use of clips. But then the clips come in here, don't they? Yeah. And and this goes back to the skill as an editor, that I think the easy thing to do in a making of film is rely on the clips from the film to draw out the attention and the investment from your audience. And that that's I, that might be quite cynical, but you if you show people something that they're familiar with and then show them how that thing was made, it's it's quite easy. Um, and she she just doesn't do that. You it's so focused on those men and how the inner workings of the studio come about that you act, you almost don't need them. And hmm. the film almost works without any knowledge of Studio Ghibli in the first place. But then when the clips do come in, you think, oh God, yes, this is what it's all for. And it shows you these, these magical moments of, of flight and supernatural beings and it's beautiful and that is where the whole film comes together and you couldn't ask for better dialogue from the man himself well let me quote it so he's, he's looking out over the rooftops and he's saying you could almost shimmy up that pipe and jump from one roof to here and go up there and he says suddenly there in your humdrum town is a magical movie isn't it fun to see things that way feels like you could go somewhere far beyond maybe you can and you know that when that drops and after everything we've said about these ghibli films about what's magical about them magical about them in a fantasy way but also in those realistic films like whisper of the heart which are magical in their own way miyazaki there himself sums it up better than we ever could it's all just about looking out your window and seeing something magical and that's what the ghibli spark is and this film's given us so much up to that point, and then it decides to also have the ultimate statement on what Miyazaki's <laughs> magic touch is. And it's like, you're just, just getting greedy now, Mami Sonata. I know. I mean, people have wasted their time listening to this podcast to try and figure out what their films are about. All they needed was that five-minute clip. Yeah. So I really think this is like the ultimate Ghibli documentary. I know we've had lots of people say, what about this... 10 years with Hayao Miyazaki documentary. What about the documentaries on the Blu-rays? All these things. I've watched a lot of them over the years, but this is just such a piece and it's such a great documentary and piece of observation, but also a summation of what Ghibli means to people and what Ghibli is. It's it's just, it's, it's incredible. I like it. I like it too.
Okay, wow, kind of got a bit emotional there at the end, Michael. Um, now, normally at this point, I'd ask you to rank this along with the other Ghibli films, but of course, this is not a Ghibli film. Um, so we're going to forego the leaderboard and the Jacob's Ladder for this episode. Uh, but this is one half of a documentary double bill. So what are we talking about in our next episode? So next episode, we're going to talk about Hayao Miyazaki, Never Ending Man, which overlaps with this film, actually. It starts where this film ends with the the announcements of his retirement, saying he's done with feature filmmaking, and it sees what happens next. It, it's popularly known as the, the documentary about his first brush with CG animation and how what sparks fly when Miyazaki meets with a, you know, a Wacom tablet. But I think there's a lot to talk about there. It's a very different sort of film and much shorter, but I can't wait to talk with you about it, Jake. Neither can I. Now, that is the end of our time in the Ghibliotech this week. But if you want to keep up with us on Twitter, you can do so. We are at Ghibliotech. And Michael is on Twitter as Michael J. Leader. And Jake is on Twitter at Jake H. Cunningham. And also, please feel free to send us any emails. The mailbag is open at ghibli at little.studios.com. Ghibliotech is a Little Dot Studios production. Our music is made by Anthony Ng. Our artwork is by Sophie Moe. And Jamie Maisner is our audio wizard. The show is produced by Michael Leader, Jake Cunningham, Steph Watts and Harold McShiel. Hello there, listeners. Thank you for sticking with us through the credits. A little nugget from The Kingdom of Dreams and Madness. The score is absolutely beautiful. It's by a composer called Takagi Masakatsu. I'd recommend checking it out on Spotify. There's a really beautiful piece of piano music that plays under a montage towards the end of the film that is just astounding. He also is notable for anime fans because he is a close collaborator with Mamoru Hosoda and did the soundtracks for his films Boy and the Beast, Wolf Children, and Mirai. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.